welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Takei, and this is the interview and insight segment. Industries go through mass disaggregation and consolidation, and such as the cycle of business. And such a time has come for gaming. Dozens and dozens of ex-Riot, ex-Blizzard, ex-EA game studios have flooded the market. Tech companies and film groups have announced their foray into gaming. As imported by, reported by InvestGame, in 2022, there were 782 closed deals across game studios, infra, VR and AR, Web3, and more. TLDR, everyone listening probably knows a developer that has abandoned their post in AAA or mobile to embark on their next new adventure. So today we're going to be talking about what it's like to work in AAA versus a gaming startup and what should you do if you're contemplating an offer between a seed stage or early stage game studio and an established studio be thinking about before signing and what role do AAA and game startups play in the innovator's dilemma. In order to hear both sides of the story, I brought on two guests who can speak precisely to this subject matter. First, Jess Adepohu, lead producer at Bad Robot Games. Bad Robot, for those who don't recognize the name, is the gaming house underneath Bad Robot Productions, the production company founded by and led um, by legendary director J.J. Abrams. Jess is also an alumni of Stanford's GSB and runs a consulting business for indie game devs called The Indie Intellectual. Welcome to the pod, Jess. Hi, happy to be here. Yay. And next up, we've got another Stanford alumni, my close mentor and friend, Lee Reed, studio product lead at Infinity Ward on Call of Duty. Lee and I worked together quite a bit on Hearthstone during one of his MBA rotations. And I basically attribute my acceptance to Stanford to him (laughs) to say that my first draft of the What Matters to Me Most and Why essay was not in the best of spots when Lee first got eyes on it. Um, But welcome to the pod, Lee. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Good to see you again as well, Jess. Likewise. Very good to have you both on. I just saw Lee the other day. We caught up at the Night Management Center during the five-year reunion, and that was just really, really fun. So I'm really excited to have just two fellow fellow GSBers um, on the podcast. And I know that I introduced you guys briefly, but I would love for you guys to both share your pathway into games for the audience. And for my sake, actually give one sentence about what it was like to be into games while attending the GSB. Um, Jess, how about you go first? Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, Pathway into Games. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to say anything too unique here for anyone listening who has kind of done the business into games pathway, but I started my career, uh, like many folks in business and consulting, uh, didn't like that very much. It didn't really fit who I was as a person. Um, But the good news is that through that, I discovered a love of product, which eventually led me to the GSB and eventually Activision Blizzard. Um, and AB has a fantastic business to gaming programs, a rotational program. You go nine months through each of its big operating houses, King Blizzard uh, and Activision. And that's actually uh, a common point that Lee and I have. We we did the same program and we're very close classmates in terms of that. So um, that's kind of how I got into games. And then what was the one sentence question? Uh, 
what it was like to be into games while at the GSB. Oh, yeah. Um, honestly, <laughs> um, Alex, Lee, I'm curious what you guys think about this, but for me, it was a positive experience. I find GSBers like to have a shtick or a differentiator, and that was my differentiator when I was there. I was one of the co-presidents. People came to know me as that gaming kid, like folks would ask me questions about it. And even to this day, that's kind of what I'm known for. So it was a great experience for me. Um, the GSB is not necessarily the most gaming-focused business school out there, but uh, I, I I got a lot of value out of it while I was there. Well, it's the same now. A um, <laughs> couple years down the line, I'm also the gaming person. I'm also the random gaming girl, uh, and it's still not a gaming-focused school. So it was just interesting to sort of see. Um, Lee, how about you? Yeah, very similar in some ways. I think for me, like similar to you all, like grew up a lifetime gamer, played a lot of games growing up, and that actually led me to this world where I really wanted to create games. So started programming when I was young, would make these educational games for teaching kids how to do math, got into computer science, and honestly, it was a little bit of a black box, at least coming out of the Midwest. How do you actually get into gaming? So ended up bouncing around in other industries and then found my way back about five, six, seven years ago. Time is a blur with pandemic, et cetera. Um, and then since then, joined a similar program to Just, started off my journey more in like the business route. So looking at like corporate strategy, what organizations or companies should Activision Blizzard actually purchase or acquire to our platform strategy. And then from there, moved on more so towards Blizzard and got to work with you, Alex, on Hearthstone, which was a ton of fun, trying to hit Legend every season. Um, and never now made I'm it. At, hey, I, I made it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I did not make it. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it, it took a lot of hours. Um, eventually made it. Um, and then after that, spent time and kind of went full circle with first actual launch on Tony Hawk, which was a game I played a ton growing up. And then now at Infinity Ward working on Call of Duty. So definitely has been a bit of a whirlwind, a ton of fun. I think when I was at the GSB, one of the coolest things about gaming as an industry is that there's always something changing. There's always growth, whether that's technology, whether that's art, whether that's whether that's business model innovation. If you look at the trends right now with transmedia as well, like so I think there's always some aspect of gaming, whether it's a game or not, in like most other consumer products. So like looking at those parallels to and from gaming is like really fun problem space to think through. Nice, nice. Um, okay, so before we had the sync to talk about, um, before of this, we had the sync to talk about what we were going to talk about. And we came up with like 25 different ideas that could not all fit into a hour-long episode. Um, and the differences between AAA and game studios, right? The differences in product life cycles, project greenlighting, decision-making, culture, resources, diversity, and hiring, fundraising, production, and processes. How swayed is the studio by industry trends at the startup level versus an incumbent level? Compensation, the work-from-home question, and more. Um, but today, we kind of boiled it down to four topics. And for our audience, our structure is going to be loosely as follows. We're first going to talk about, like, one, what are your goals? and how that determines where, where where you should go. Two, the differences between production and process. Three, the differences between hiring and DEI initiatives. And four, the differences in perspective on edge and innovation. So this is kind of what we're going to talk about today. And one thing to note before we start is that what Jess and Lee share today is not necessarily reflective of the opinions of their organizations, that being Bad Robot or IW. Jess or um, Lee, I don't know if you have anything else to add there. All right, solid. Um, so that's what we're going to do. 
we're going to start with what are your goals? If my goal is X, I should do Y. And Jess, you kind of said it best um, since you're the one that kind of came up with the overarching theme of what are your goals. I'm going to, I'm going to toss it to you first. From a high level, by what context should I join a game startup? Uh, maybe discuss this in the frame of agency and impact or personality or kind of whatever you feel is, is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm, as you kind of mentioned, Alex, excited about this question because I would have, have loved to hear a podcast discussing this when I was making these decisions. So hopefully I think this is going to be helpful to some folks. Um, but I just want to preface this by saying that I've had experience across both, right? I've been at AAA and now I'm working in a smaller company. Uh, and I would say uh, it really, the in terms of why you want to be a part of a startup, it really depends on what you want to get out of your gaming career, right? So having that clarity, for me, uh, I've known since I played games when I was younger, all the way up to going through business school to joining uh, first Activision Blizzard and now Bad Robot Games that I want to start my own gaming studio. And my reasoning for joining a smaller startup and why it's been so beneficial for me is there's no better position in games, I think, uh, from whence you get to know anything about everything in game development. So obviously games, as I think uh, Lee made reference to, it's a deep ever-changing space. And there's a bunch of different verticals, right? Between audio and gameplay design and narrative design and, and maps and environmental design. There's just so much. And that's just on the development side. There's the publishing side where you have to think about pricing and what platform are you going to be on and what partnerships are you going to strike? So there's a lot to learn. Um, and startups are one of those places where naturally you wear many hats because we simply don't have the budget to hire enough people to take on all the roles uh, that are required to kind of get a game out the door. So for me, it was a perfect place to position kind of my career in terms of moving towards that game studio leadership. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest thing is just an opportunity to be involved in, in many different aspects of game development. Yeah, absolutely. I know in like my career, I've thought I've definitely thought about that aspect of kind of like just taking the plunge and being really immersed. And I think a lot of people come out of their startup or AAA experience kind of realizing that there's this like siloing that happens when you get cut really big. But in that same vein, and Lee, maybe this I'll pass it to you. You know, what if your goal is another thing, why would you go to uh, not go to a gaming studio startup? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where really one of the fundamental differences is in the definition, right? So like pre-existing pre scale, budget, resourcing. So I think it's going to be really personal to you in terms of what environment will allow you, enable you to thrive. Um, I think in terms of like key decision consideration points, it would be, I would agree with what Jess was saying. Hey, it's mini hats. So if you already have like a very narrow discipline where you're like, hey, I really want to become the best environmental environmental artist in the world or the best animator in the world, I think going to a larger AAA studio with more structure, more resourcing, more examples of, hey, this is what that looks like at scale. This is what best practice looks like. This is the pipeline and flow for that particular discipline that you're interested in would really help build your foundation that you can then take later to your own projects, whether that's at another studio or possibly your own creative vision as well. Versus if, let's say, hey, I, you're not really sure, like you're interested, like I've spoke to one of my mentees recently, and he's like, hey, I'm really interested in audio, but I also like production and then also like the business side. I think the great thing about like going to an indie studio is that you'll be able to really wear mini hats just because there's less people and there isn't like this rigid structure of, hey, this is your department and your discipline. So you can really get 
all a range of, of that full spectrum of experiences um, with that piece. Um, I think outside of that, another thing to think about is how much do you care about risk and how do you manage risk? Um, I do think there's, there is like some comfort in terms of like, Hey, with that resourcing and budget, like you're likely to see your game be released. Um, and I think with an indie studio, just like any other startup, you need to feel comfortable that, Hey, I'm working on something really awesome. And maybe it, reaches a million players or 10 million players or a hundred million players, or maybe it's just a thousand players and that's okay because I'm getting that out in the world. So I think really in terms of like, Hey, what would you be happy with goal wise? Um, is also like in terms of product outcome. Uh, and that may vary depending on the stage of your career. It may vary depending on like your own personal interests, et cetera. I think that could also like help shape the overall decision. Yeah, yeah, I love that prem- of grounding this discussion sort of like in what your goals are and what your expertise is, right? If you've already decided, yeah, you want to be the best animator, I think a lot of PMs do the same thing. They're like, I want to be the best PM, so I'm going to Fortnite, right? And you go to the places where those things are kind of done like best in class. Um, and But if your ambitions are different than that and you don't really like know or you have this like dream of creating your own game or bringing your own thing into the universe, um, you guide yourself through different through different steps. Um, and, and Lee, you kind of mentioned this kind of like department siloing. Um, my department runs this, my department runs X. Um, now that we've kind of grounded ourselves in sort of what someone would do if they were individual of X background and they wanted to accomplish Y, I kind of want to talk about the differences and structures of process and production. Um, and so I kind of want to like, let, like go back a little bit, like take a couple steps backwards. Um, I want to start with the green lighting process and let me know if I've got this wrong, but my first stab at this is the following, right? Game startups raise money usually on a game pitch. So when you go in, you're all hands on deck on the game that you've raised money to make. Um, And so maybe it's not worth as much the effort to discuss this, but um, from the other side of things, right? You're at a bigger studio with several departments, right? What's the process by which that everybody in all these departments decides to green light, um, a new game, a new IP, or new features? Yeah, it's super interesting because I've been a part of a few green light pitches. One where I was pitching my own idea and it was just like, okay, can I get funding from that within a AAA environment? I've been a part of this with new IP development and then also with existing IP as well. Uh, it varies, of course, but I would say the biggest constraint that you have at a AAA studio when it comes to green lighting. And the green light process is really that process of going from concept to something that's funded and resourced so that it has a chance of making it into the world or becoming reality, right? So I think the biggest constraint that AAA studios have is that they have existing player bases, they have existing financial commitments as well. So if, for example, in Call of Duty, if we wanted to turn that into a basketball game tomorrow, you know, maybe some of our players will want that, but you probably lose a pretty large core of your player base. So is that I, risk? I just, I would say, Lee, I definitely play that game. That sounds okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, hey, we did experiment with soccer. So <laughs> I'm not saying we're not doing it at all. Um but, you know, there is like risk there. So like, is it worth the investment in like that basketball game? Or should we be like really looking at like the shooter persona and exploring other use cases like our focus on extraction shooters this year with DMZ? Um, so I think that's one constraint in terms of just like, hey, there's an opportunity cost to like anything you do that's new. I think the second one would be um, there's also an opportunity cost to exploring any new IP as well, right? In terms of 
do you invest more dollars into your existing titles or do you try something new? And I would say most AAA studios take a very portfolio approach. So like the green light process is very much like you go from concept and it may just be a couple designers, an engineer, a product person, and you have this really cool idea and it's like, hey, I really want to try this. And you're kind of doing it in your own time. And then eventually the ones that are a little bit more exciting get more momentum. And then that may turn into like a presentation to let's say a game director and a studio head and then it becomes a studio initiative, which then goes on to like corporate and all of these different additional checks. And at each green light, at each green light step, essentially what you're doing is, hey, are you, you're validating, hey, is this vision that those five people, let's say now 10, 15 people, is that vision a compelling opportunity? What's the market opportunity for um, for that vision, are you the right team to even deliver against that vision? Do you, are you a, you're pitching a free to play game? Do you have any live ops experience? Do you have any expertise and whatever you think is going to make this IP and idea different? And then typically from there, there's a process where you would then let's say you get greenlit. It's like, hey, this sounds interesting. I like this concept, but would love to see like what's the special sauce that what makes it different. So you may get some additional resourcing pull. 20 to 30 people to build some sort of play, um, playable demo, um, which we would then play test together as a group. And then there was another green light that says, okay, now does this actually prove the case for actually increasing the resourcing and going from pre-production and production for this? So there's like a series of gates that get you there. And at the same time, during all that backdrop, you're competing with players are still demanding more resourcing for World of Warcraft or Overwatch 2. Like, why isn't that coming out sooner? So, like, that's, like, the backdrop of noise that you're, like, constantly dealing with. Um, just one one quick story here. So, like, I think, like, one good example of, like, a successful ex- example within AAA is that it is a little bit easier within the existing IP. So, when I was on the Hearthstone team, there was a huge focus. And there was this really big release. Um and the auto battler space around auto chess. Um, and folks were saying, oh, this is really fun. A lot of people were playing it during work, even though, you know, we had our own seasons to work on. And there was like a pretty small group that like, hey, really wanted to go after and make this a reality. And they kind of just did grassroots movement on it. People were playing it. It kind of took on a life of its own. And for Blizzard, especially turning that game around in almost less than a year to going public is like an example of like, hey, within an existing IP with a small team, it's still possible. Um, But I would say that the reason why that was partially possible is because, hey, it was existing IP. It was a more sandbox type game, which had like limited number of production resourcing needed versus like, hey, if I wanted to go make my basketball Call of Duty game um, without (laughs) any sort of baseline. Lee, why they should just immediately make you the lead game designer for for Call of Duty because the basketball <laughs> game is definitely it. Oh, um, man. <laughs> but I actually I love the Hearthstone Battlegrounds example. I th- I think so fondly of the memories of testing that thing in Graybox and like working with Mike Denae and like ta- and like playing that thing very 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 early in like Alpha Alpha and it was just you could tell it had so much traction in it. But because they had the rails already kind of set up and you could really test it in the Hearthstone client really quickly, you didn't have to go through this like. That like they, those gates that you were talking about, the s- skill checks um, <laughs> to get through the the, the process. Um, and so, Jess, I think I actually want to compare and contrast that with your experience at Bad Robot. Like, ostensibly, you guys pitched on a certain vision, pitched on a certain game. And so, how do you? What pieces of what Lee said are similar, and what pieces are basically entirely reimagined? Yeah. So I think, uh, and I loved 
Lee, your walkthrough of all of that. I think an important note is that Bad Robot Games both publishes and develops games. So that means we, in-house, we have our studio, we're building original IP, et cetera, et cetera. We also spend a lot of time considering um, other development teams, games that they're bringing to us and those opportunities. Uh, so I would say, as contrast with AAA, um, the main difference in my mind is, I think Lee said something about like the risk of ruining this pre-existing really valuable IP, right? I think for seed stage and early stage gaming startups, it's more about the risk of having absolutely nothing. <laughs> and like, how quickly <laughs> can you make something that's valuable and start monetizing against that? So um, the way I kind of bucket interesting notes on uh, green light process and startups is the short term and the long term, right? Short term is, in terms of green light, is what deals will net us the most runway right now, right? We have a limited amount of runway from our initial funding round. Yes, we pitched on an original idea, but we could pivot, right? Or we could take on a, a new gaming project. Typically, investors don't mind that as long as you have a, a good rationale behind it. So it's a huge influence is cash, right? How can we generate cash as quickly as possible such that our startup can last long enough to build a community and build more games in the future? That's the biggest short-term consideration. And I would say what that process typically looks like, at least for us, um, is we have rubrics where we're thinking about, uh, you know, what's the genre opportunity right here? Is the genre for this particular idea hot? Um, is it growing? Is this particular game unique? Is there some differentiator here where we can outcompete the thousands of other Steam or console or mobile games that are out there? Um, and yeah, from a monetization perspective, how much money uh, do we expect to make? The other really big piece of it too is budget. So at least for our startup, we've, we think quite a bit about budget buckets, right? Um, because unfortunately in today's gaming world, particularly on PC, if you make a really ga great game, but you spent $20 million on that game, you're not going to see a profit because you have to pay all of your developers. There's Steam takes 30%. There's just so many cuts against that, against whatever revenues that you're making that you have to think really closely about what kind of spend you're spending on the game. Uh, in order to make any sort of profitability. So we think about our budget buckets. And right now we're really focused on small. So how can we build a small, smartly scoped game that has big monetization potential and has big retention potential? That's a huge consideration for us when we think about green light and what games we're considering. Interesting. Did, yeah. Yeah. Go, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say on top of that, uh, then leadership kind of gets together, looks at all those factors and, and makes a decision. That's the short term kind of urgent, like we need to make money piece of this. The longer term uh, side of it, the longer term decisioning, I think is a little bit more exciting, and a little bit more related to why I wanted to work at a startup. So the answer around how we do that is it really varies. Sometimes it's dysfunctional, sometimes it's not. Um, when we think about kind of the long term opportunities for our studio, uh, sometimes it's employee pitches, right? So Lee reference pitching a game um, to his kind of AAA team and doing it in that environment. We, I think startups attract a lot of game dev creatives who want to make their own games. So we see a ton of like, hey, this could be a good idea. I built this prototype. What are, you know, what does that mean in terms of what we could do at this studio? Uh, and I would say startups more generally are really good environments for pitching an idea if that's what you want to do within games. Um, but another kind of tactic that we've used is hiring business development leads who spend all their time thinking about future partnerships and good business opportunities in terms of our next IP and our next game. So that's another piece of it as well. Um, so I would say for us, short term, a little bit con 
constricted or constrained based on making cash. Um, but once that cash is made, the sky is kind of the limit in terms of, of our long-term projects at the studio. Yeah, really interesting. And thank you. And thanks for sharing um, the, the just detail to, there. Go yeah, ahead. Just to so, double down on that, because I have a lot of friends at Indie Studios as well. Like most of my friends who have their own studios, they really, in that short-term bucket, that's why you see a lot of people go after licensed IP. Um, so they're looking at, hey, is there some sort of licensed partnership that I can either do co-development for or mm-hmm. use that to build my war chest to then take on a riskier um new franchise or new ip or whatever the Mm -hmm. ultimate vision is for that studio so like depending on the level of funding you'll see like strategies around that as well Mm -hmm. especially in a world of like post idfa where just like customer acquisition and player acquisition right now is just so much harder in the mobile space yeah totally totally yeah i think um we just did a gaming panel here at stanford for the all media entertainment conference and emily greer the founder of congregate she spoke a lot about that tactic of using licensed ip to kind of flywheel your um uh ua um but it's not what i heard actually in both of you guys is really interesting reliance on data informing some of the decisions that are made you know jess you talked about hiring biz dev people who are like is this market hot is this genre cool etc and then like lee you talked about like well there's like these types of things and like this is resonating really well with the audience and maybe we should try this game mode etc um i find that kind of to be like an interesting dynamic where at the startup level you have creatives who really want to make their own game and get the same time as a startup in their fight for survival, you're looking for where there is a red ocean, right? Um, I'm sorry, blue ocean, the opposite. You don't avoid red ocean, go for the blue, right? And so how do you guys kind of triage that, that conflict about like trying to find a pocket that is underserved, but also meeting the needs of those creatives who clearly just really want to make what they want to make, if that makes sense. Lee, you want to jump in or I have some thoughts. Yeah, go for it, Jess. Yeah. Okay. I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this um, for a variety of reasons, um, in part because my studio has not yet released anything. So we're thinking a lot about, you know, what are we releasing? Um, yeah. So I would say the primary conflict within early stage gaming companies is not so much kind of the creative capacity of our employee base versus um, like, where is there an opportunity? I think it's really like that hunt for opportunity, Alex, that you mentioned is our entire focus. Like, great when we can leverage some ideas from our creatives and use that in, in pursuit of opportunity, fantastic. But finding an opportunity alone is such a difficult proposition <laughs> that I think we're we're just really focused on that. Um, and I guess like some plus one thoughts around that. Uh, sometimes I think, in the some of the notes around this uh, conversation, there's something about innovation and edge and how do startups pursue that and what's the difference between that and AAA. Unfortunately, in 2023, I feel like the focus for startups is a lot less um, on innovation and edge and more about attention, right? It's about how do we get players to pay attention to us when you've got Call of Duty budgets, you've got God of War hiring Ben Stiller to play act as Kratos. Like, how in the <laughs> world do you get any anyone to look at your game and look at what you're doing? And being innovative is just one tool that you can use to, to get that attention. So other tools are things that I've already mentioned on this podcast. Um, finding, and I think you mentioned as well, Alex, finding an underserved, really hot and growing genre uh, extraction shooters is a great example right now for the PC world, like just growing like gangbusters, lo-fi horror. Like there's a bunch of like not well covered by journalism genres that 
there's it just has avid um, player bases that we think a lot about. Um, and that kind of leads to my second point, which is about finding the right the right target audience. I think increasingly startups in the gaming world are thinking about hyper curation of their games. How can we find a niche and then build the game for that niche? Because those are super fans, right? Those are the trendsetters, the people who are going to tell their friends about the game. Those are the people who are going to spend money because gaming is their hobby. They spend thousands of dollars every year already. They're just looking for the next great game to, to spend money on. Um, also, those folks give really good feedback too. Like casual users just can't give feedback at the quality level of mm. those super fans in these hyper specific categories that a lot of startups I think are looking at. So to roll it back to your original question, um, I think like creative talent within a startup can serve as maybe an inspiration point for finding those audiences or finding those niches. Like, you know, we have a lot of weirdos in our studio in the most complimentary way. But if those if those interests or those gaming category interests represent a larger community that we think we can take advantage of and kind of lean into, we'll do it. Um, if not, not so much. I think the real number one goal for us is is user attention. Got it. Yeah, and just to add to that one, it's almost the opposite in some ways. Not the attention point, but it's almost the opposite in terms of red versus blue ocean on the AAA side. I would say for us, whenever we're thinking through ideas, there's less of a hey, this other studio has already conquered this genre. We shouldn't go after it. It's more so, hey, there's existing competitors that, that exist. How can we do it better at a higher scale with more resourcing? So I think the budget allows you to kind of, I don't want to say steamroll, but like you can kind of drive, you hope you can drive and push the industry, right? So like when we released Warzone, for example, in Call of Duty, like the vision was always to be like the biggest and like the most appealing entertaining battle royale to our fans and players um and i think there's budgets that you need to compete at that level a bit i would say almost you tend not to see that many triple a studios go into like a completely open space or where there's like no competitors that already exist just because of that risk i think it's more likely you'll see people uh, or studios that are much faster followers and then they try to fast follow very aggressively regardless of like what that genre is um, at least in terms of genre, I would say in terms of platform, it's a little bit different. Like there was a huge push on mobile about five years ago. And like, you kind of see like those general trends, there was conversations about cloud gaming, things of that sort. But when it comes to like game design and genre, I would say like, you see it a little bit more like fast following, um, versus like, Hey, let's just go do something that's never been tried and new in this brand new genre, um, that may or may not be successful. Well, guys, I just want to say Professor Lavav of Product Launch would be really, really proud of us because what we just laid out was the disruption innovation model, also known as the innovator's dilemma, <laughs> where we discuss two types of disruption. One, new market disruption, which is competing against non-consumption. And two, low-end disruption. This is when you address overserved customers with a low-cost business model or bring a better product to an established market. So what Jess described and then what Lee described. Um, and it's actually really funny because... I think sometimes in the gaming world, we think that we, oh, we could never force fit a creative medium like games into something like Silicon Valley product launch and like startup garage. But actually, <laughs> it's kind of working because like that's basically what Battle Royale was, right? You had a Daybreak H1Z1, King of the Kill, which may or may not have directly inspired Brendan Green to go build PUBG. And then that was a new market disruption, new genre, completely underserved customer, nothing that anybody had ever played before. And then very quickly, you had the fast followers, Epic and Respawn, come in bringing a better 
product online with an established customer need, you know, at a lower cost, you know, business model like free to play versus the box with uh, servers that didn't glitch and, you know, you didn't sink into the, you weren't halfway between the ground and the air and there were less bugs. And then all of a sudden you have an established player, right? Yeah. Um, and so, this could, little, oh, so just, go ahead. We were going to talk about this at the end, but I think we're just going to fast forward to this now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I just want to plus one you, Alex. Like, I definitely think that there's a lot of similarities between games and other Silicon Valley tech businesses because games is a business. And um, I mean, in addition to everything you outlined, games is also trendy, right? Genre-based, platform-based, whatever. There are trends that you can track over time when it comes to games. Uh, think about Stardew Valley, for example, and how that just re-anchored the farming sims of sure. earlier stages, which mostly I think Nintendo dominated. Um, but yeah, to your, to your, to your higher level point, definitely there are business, uh, I think learnings from other industries that you can apply to games and those companies that have done that well have really seen results. Yeah. He's still at it, Lavav, with the segue, the segue failure and the, and the bad juicer, the juicer <laughs> that like was modeled after the Keurig that like completely failed. Um, I, so I think... <laughs> I still remember those graphs from from the GSB of like you'll have a trend line going down and then just two words on the axis like <laughs> disruption versus like market shares. It's like yep. no numbers, just words and lines. <laughs> yeah, no, I, think, I think I think it's gonna be like super interesting too if you look at like the next let's call it three to five years as like content starts to become more democratized and you see you're seeing the trends with production pipelines theoretically going down a bit with generative AI, procedural generation, things of that front. Like I would say on our side, hmm, what can I say here? <laughs> I guess on our side, like one thing that we do, and like I would say from like an innovation standpoint is most AAA studios are investing heavily in their graphical fidelity. And like I would say when it comes to like those larger bets, you know, Call of Duty or, you know, has some of the best water physics in the world when it comes to like, how that renders in the engine, which is like a very different like problem to go after, a very expensive problem to go after versus like some of the opportunities afforded by um, some of these other trends on content creation pipelines, UGC, right. et cetera. So right. like seeing how all that stuff shakes out from both like an indie versus AAA standpoint will be super interesting. Yeah. How amenable do you think like AAA in a, another compare and contrast situation, how amenable are you, do you think gaming startups versus AAA are at adopting these pieces of technology um, in, in yeah. general, right? Because like, I think for startups, right? A VC definitely wants to hear that you're adopting keyword of the month, web three, <laughs> cloud gaming, generative AI, yeah. because they believe that's going to lead to some sort of like substantial edge, obviously then returns, et cetera, you know, being first, first and early. Um, so wonder if you could talk about the differences that you guys have experienced at your companies in terms of adopting new technology or new processes that are maybe against the grain. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, do you want to go first, Lee? I can kick this one off. I yeah, think yeah. like when you look at AAA studios, like they definitely go through all the stages of like a hype cycle. So like when Google Stadia was announcing and everyone's talking about cloud gaming, I think I saw at least like 10 different pitches across our company in terms of like, hey, what could be our solutions there? Also heard that from friends at like other AAA studios as well. Um, during the blockchain bull market, there's lots of conversations. There's a lot of conversations now in generative AI. I think the difference though is that a lot of that at times can be, it varies from company to company. Like obviously there's, if you look at Roblox, they took a very strong stand on some of these topics. Ubisoft is also very pushing the edge on like a lot of these areas in terms of like technology strategy and things of that sort. Um, 
But I will say that like, I do think there's an opportunity for startups and for indie studios where when things are quiet and it's like not in the hype cycle phase, it's like, well, if you keep building, if you really believe in that vision, I think you have a chance to get an advantage that maybe the market hasn't seen in these areas, especially compared to some of the existing incumbents who, one, likely want to build it themselves because they have so much resources, but there's competing priorities. So I think there's always going to be like a little bit more of a delayed reaction, sometimes in the years, sometimes in the months, depending on idea, likely in the years, typically, um, when it comes to these things. Yeah, um, agree with all of that. I think startup world, uh, pessimistic and optimistic view on kind of new technologies and how we implement it. So pessimistic view is that unless you are a startup team that has from the beginning built your pitch and your vision and what your your product kind of roadmap around a new technology from the get, um, it's a distraction, new technologies. And exactly for the reasons that you mentioned, Alex, because your investors or new investors, your existing or new investors often are so distracted by these, these trendier new, new technologies that you get a lot of pressure um, to pivot or to implement something that wasn't originally in scope. And a lot of startups are already struggling with production, timeliness, deadlines in a way that that's just not useful to getting a game out the door on the time scale that you originally laid out. That's kind of the pessimistic view, except with the exception being if it was an original cornerstone of whatever your idea was. Um, the more optimistic view is that there are, I think, really good case examples of nimbleness with regards to new technology serving startups really well. So, um, you know, Fortnite, for example, uh, you know, kind of had two different approaches with what they were doing. They have their PVE mode, and then they had Battle Royale. They took these kind of different modes to market, saw what worked, and leaned all the way in. Um, and I think there's there's many other examples aside from that. Extraction shooters, for example, you'll see a lot of some of the most famous extraction shooters started as twin stick shooters, um, which are just not a very popular genre on Steam. But following in the example of some very popular extraction shooters, game teams have begun to add deep loot systems and other things to bring their games closer to that example uh, and have seen a lot of positive returns for that. So I guess like the optimistic view on this is new technologies can serve the success of a game, but I think game teams really need to closely examine, does this fit with our existing processes? Does this fit with the concept of our game? Does this, ex- does this fit with the target audience, that kind of niche hyper curated group that I talked about earlier? Do they want this? Do they care about this? Will this serve them? And if the answers are yes, then I think it can really help uh, a new game succeed. Interesting. And then like in that, you mentioned before, like, oh, adopting the new technology could potentially be a distraction. You know, we've already got these production processes that are kind of, we're behind or we're ahead or like, we're still trying to all figure it out, right? The first thing is like, okay, well, how do you push back sort of on those investors if they're saying like, oh, you need to do generative AI like right now? And two, sort of like, let's, Shifting back to like the process and production question, what are those processes and production questions that are maybe different between the AAA and the startup world? Uh, on the VC question, I have limited exposure directly dealing with VCs on this. This is more what I've heard from my CEO and CEO on the matter. But I think it's holding firm with your vision, right? Like, I think if you have a concept from which new technologies can easily hang, be it NFTs or what UGC or whatever the hell. Um, Great, because then your investor is always going to see the downstream potential of uh, of what you're building. But I feel like and this is honestly very much a my 
thesis as someone who's interested in starting their own company. Um, I think investors more so respect founders and business leads who have a good theory about what's what's meaningful and what meaningfully moves the needle in terms of successful game. And that's retention and user acquisition. Uh, and honestly, that into itself is a big enough challenge for startups to solve outside of like integrating new technology. So I feel like there's a level of respect offered uh, to that kind of to that kind of perspective. Uh, and then in terms of the production thing, that's what was, what was the specific question there? Just kind of how does how does it work, or how is it different? Yeah, I think like you know because we talk about like the agile and like waterfall methodologies, right? But I think fundamentally, like games, it's very difficult to build in like a true agile philosophy because there is a game design vision at the end, and you know like by the end, like we're gonna have like seven characters, or we're gonna have like this map specifically. So it's almost like a combination of agile coupled in with waterfall production management styles. And so wondering whether or not like at the startup level that actually looks meaningful fully different such that it is leaning more towards the agile methodology and maybe at the AAA side it leans more towards this like waterfall and wondering whether or not you guys are changing and manipulating that as you go along um, if you could talk about the production um, philosophies in terms of at, at least at your respective studios yeah I would imagine and maybe I'm wrong about this I'd be curious to hear from you Jess too but like I would imagine the processes aren't that different like most people who work and AAA, if you've been in this industry long enough, right, it's very small. So, like, you see a lot of producers and different developers move in and out of indie to AAA and back. So, they're taking those learnings and best practices with them. Um, I would say really the difference is that the, really the big difference here is, is this a single executable, you know, one and done, like you ship the game, maybe there's a patch of like some initial bugs. Is it like a single player experience or is this something that's supporting multiplayer? Is it live ops? And I think you do send, you do tend to see more AAA studios more in like that games as a service model. And I think that's where you really, you know, I think that distinction is more so where the production processes will change. So like in a single player game, so like we'll build a campaign, like it's very waterfall. There's like a very set narrative and story. And then it's like you're building out the missions and stories in that world over time. And maybe there's some like agile development added in at the margins around like how can you optimize and make things better. Um, but when it comes to like multiplayer or free to play, like I think regardless of size of studio, it's always going to be agile. Things are always going to be a change are always going to change. There's also a mix of like experimentation, new feature demands, pivoting to um, any sort of measurement data around user acquisition and retention to Jess's point as well. So I think it's very flexible. I think people would be surprised at how Wild West um, some some things are. Like, you know, the biggest names, like, you know, sometimes things make it into a game and it's like, oh man, I remember someone's just working on that two weeks ago and now it's like on (laughs) PS5 and we were like trying to sort it through and uh, there's opportunities to improve that there. But yes, definitely. (laughs) It's probably more similarities than differences, I would imagine. Yeah, very, 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 very much agree. Um, and I sometimes chuckle at how like terms like agile and waterfile, waterfall almost disguises how just people trying to figure out what what's coming up next these processes really are. Um, at our gaming studio, we refer to it as fog of war, right? So um, my CEO has this great quote, which is like, Jess, you can plan for the next two weeks, maybe the next four weeks. But honestly, after that, you have no idea what's going to happen, both in terms of where our game development will go, what new feature might need to be added in, whatever, what partnerships might pop up. So we're constantly in a state of uncertainty. Um, So I think 
yeah, for us, like the core processes are the same. We use Agile. We use Waterfall primarily for scheduling out our our, our high level beats. Um, but I think like I don't know. I don't know if it's a difference, but I just feel like startups often are very comfortable with uncertainty and we flex all the time, both in terms of our milestones, what we're building, how quickly we think we're going to build those things. It changes constantly and you just kind of have to get used to that in early stage game development. And do you think there's like a specific type of person that does better with that? And maybe I'm like inching us towards like the hiring question, but like if you have to be okay with that uncertainty, like who does well in that environment, right? Like me, you know, Lee, before you pointed out, like, oh, if you want to be like the best environments are harder. So you're like super spiky individual contributor on like XYZ thing. Is that uncertainty like a strength? Sorry, does does having that level of uncertainty kind of like um, really boost that person? Or does that actually really like detract from their ability to perform? Um, and in, if those things are the case or if they're not, right? Who do you look to to start doing recruiting processes for these product production pipelines or for the startup in general? I think typically what people like this are called self-starters, but I prefer to call them ambitious. Uh, and to me, there's like two different levels of ambition, right? There's ambitious in terms of a, a type of developer who wants to, honestly, maybe take over a lot. They want to be involved in everything. They want to make decisions. They want to know what's going on. I, I certainly self-characterize as, a, as that kind of game developer. I think that kind of person does well because um, in an environment of uncertainty, you're constantly having to, as I mentioned, change what your plans were, understand how this affects other teams, etc. So I think that's an important skill set. The other type of ambition that I think does well is the type of ambition that drives pride and craft. So this idea that Lee was referring to in terms of like, maybe like an audio person that loves what they do. And irregardless of what, I don't know, the lead producer might say, they know what's going to make for a good audio soundscape in the game. And they, it's kind of like, okay, Jess, like I get this all the time at work. Like, okay, Jess, this was your original milestone schedule. Great. But this is what I know we need to do. And we're going to have to have a conversation in order to come to some sort of alignment on that. I think those people do fantastically and honestly improve the overall quality of any given given video game. So I feel like if you're in either of those buckets, you'll you'll do well in a startup. And I think like on the AAA side, I think you get a mix of that too, really depending on like what department you're in. Like if you're working in lighting versus if you're working in production or if you're working in product, I would say like it's quite different experiences. I will say that you probably get, if you're someone who likes... Not necessarily set, because I would say problems constantly change. There's always scope creep. There's always bugs and new tasks and enhancements that come up on our side, too. But, like, if you're someone who likes having, like, a further view on overarching goals for your department, for your area over, let's say, like, a patch cycle, which could be three months, it could be six months, depending on your game. Like, I think that structure for certain people allows them to sort of hunker in and hunker down and really go as deep as they want onto that issue and like flex their creative muscles um, in a very targeted, concentrated way against that problem versus I would say it sounds like just what you were, what you were also describing was that there's a decent amount of context switching, which some people may also like as well. So like, I would say if you're someone who doesn't like that as much or, you know, likes a little bit more structure and plan when it comes to your work and tasks that you're working on or your own individual vision. And I think maybe a AAA studio could 
be better in that regard or um, finding a production team that works that way. Because there are some indie studios that also work that way too. I think it's yeah. more like a production. It's more of a studio culture point more so than mm. necessarily AAA versus yeah. indie. Yeah, I would even take that a step further to say if there's too much context switching going on, that's probably a signal of a studio that may not be that successful in the long term. Like, yes, there's going to be some major shifts, maybe some timeline changes, etc. But if every month you're you're kind of seeing drastically different contexts, then I think you're there's there's yeah. a production issue uh, going yeah. on. To yeah, they're chess. Like if you see your leadership chasing like the next tech trend, it's yeah. probably not a sign for success. Yeah, that's not a good um. sign. <laughs> that's the that's the this is fine fire dude burning meme. <laughs> um, and actually, I think I guys have a, a challenging question on this topic as well. We talked about some of the maybe the personality styles or preferences of like uncertainty versus maybe long term vision or scope, um, and what your expectation should be when you're joining these studios. But um, a big challenge that a lot of startups have had um, is actually recruiting diverse talent onto the studio side. Um, because the problem is just that, okay, we have a conflict between um, building the thing as fast as possible and building the team in the right way, however we want to do it. Right. And I remember this being like, you know, diversity is actually like pretty important because you want to have a team that has the diversity that's concomitant with the audience that your game is trying to reach. And so from the venture side, I've seen like a fashion merge game with only male founders totally get axed, right? Because it's a fashion merge game. Um, and you're going to be surveying 35 plus year old women probably. Um, but uh, the speed point about might exhort you to hire people you've already worked with in the past, and that, depending on where you came from, um, could be pulling from a rather homogenous talent source. Um, at the startup side, and Jess, I'm going to point this to you, how do you see this conundrum kind of handled um, Yeah, at Bad Robot? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. I think it's, it's something that I've discussed with other founders and studio leads in the past, so I think it's a really good question. Um, so I think Alex, you pointed to kind of the kind of the linchpin in all of this when you talked about previous networks that founders or yeah founders may have going into starting a company. Um, I think the I guess like the conflict between speed to market or speed to getting a product out the door and the diversity of your studio or your team is a bit of a misnomer um, because it kind of assumes that. It's, assu it's assuming that network effects, I guess like diversity-driven network effects aren't present from the beginning. So to help you all understand what I'm talking about, um, my studio is, I think it's 40% women and 50% people of color. Um, what also happens to be true is that both our CEO and our COO are women. Um, these two women are deep connections in the games industry. They've been in games for decades. Um, involvement with Valve, like founding team of, of Valve and Steam, Fortnite leads, like a bunch of like really well-accomplished women in the industry. Um, and they brought their networks with them when they were founding this company. So they hired other women. Um, they hired people of color to be in leadership and management positions. Uh, and what's awesome about that is that those women and people of color then went on to hire people in their networks. So I guess like the way I think about this is um, if like you can look at it as a challenge or you can just look at it as are we going to solve this or not when you're pulling together your founding team to go pitch, do you have any diversity present in the room to your point about the group of white men doing the fashion merge? I think it's less about 
white men being able to do fashion and more about just simply, do you have diversity, diversity present in the room? Mm. Um, so I think some, some studios prioritize that and others don't, and they face the consequence of that prioritization later down the line. Lee, curious what you think. Yeah, just, uh, no, I agree with everything you were just saying, Jess. I think really, especially for the triple A side, you really have to look at both leadership of studio as well as like entry level hires. I would say, given the criticism of tech industry, gaming industry over the five years, there's been a huge focus on increasing HR resourcing, setting up employee resource groups, reaching out to different nonprofits and conferences. So I think there has been momentum and at least recognition that, hey, this is a problem that should be tackled. I think the majority of those efforts, though, right now, and I'm just speaking to AAA and like gaming industry broadly, is very focused on, hey, how can we get more folks in from college hires, internship programs, maybe Mm. grad school, maybe, which I think helps. Don't get me wrong. I think that's super important. Like, how can you have like your junior and future leaders of tomorrow be interested? Um, What I found also compelling is that you also need to think about like your leadership team too. So like, how can you, it's not just about you going after emerging talent or people from university, but like, is there some sort of signal of um, changes at the top? And I think right now, sometimes you'll see a fear of like, Hey, if I go to this studio, will I fit in? Will leadership respect me? Uh, What's the culture of this? Because People will see, hey, only white males, let's say, or, you know, they don't see anyone that really looks like them in like a leadership role. So it's hard for them to even imagine it as being a possibility. Um, What that also does is that you get less people applying. So I think sometimes we put so much emphasis on like, hey, you have to check all these boxes to apply for this role at a studio. And I think a lot of times it's a lot of network driven, just in time hiring hiring. There's a lot of biases with that in terms of people hiring people who are similar to you um, as well. So I think those are like some of the things that we need to tackle both like bottom of the, you know, not bottom, but like more entry level and like early career, but then also like I would say top in terms of like leadership roles as well as it relates to recruiting um, to really move the needle here. A hundred percent, 110 percent. Like I feel like leads I've spoken to too often kind of go to the macro when it comes to this problem. Like, oh, there's not enough diverse talent in the industry, et cetera, et cetera. When this is really a micro problem, it's who are your networks? Like literally you, like who are your networks? Who do you know? Um, if you don't yourself don't know many diverse game devs, that's probably a you problem. And it probably means that you're not able to experience those very beneficial network effects that drive a, the diversification of a studio for so many other companies. Um, the other just small tag in I would say is um, I feel like today just going back to the point about differentiation. I think there was a point at like, like mid two thousands, like 2010s, whatever, where being a diverse game studio was like unto itself, like some sort of like selling point. And not to say that that shouldn't be the case, but I feel like that's a little passe now. I feel like today, if you really want to make a mark in that way, you need to go to market with a thesis. So not so much we are special because we have a diverse studio, but more so this is the impact that we want to leave on the industry by focusing on diversity, be it, well, to speak a little bit about Bad Robot Games, we're very focused on transmedia, right? So we think a lot about the vendors and the industries that support film and games and how we can help them understand how to have diverse, inclusive, processes as relates to gaming and how to work with with studios like us because a lot of these old school film vendors don't know anything about like 
writing an inclusive script for a video game, but that's the kind of work we do all the time. So yeah, I guess like having a specific thesis is important too. Yeah, I would say just one small point just to add to that. I think there are a lot of people at, there's a lot of passionate folks at studios around these issues. And there's a lot of bottoms up work that happens across like different AAA studios and large companies to make changes. And that work is very motivating. I think you saw some of those talks at GDC for folks who tuned in there. I think something else that's also needed would just be like additional funding and resourcing. Because to your point, Alex, it's, when things are busy, you're in the fire, it's hectic. It's very easy to hire like the person who, oh, I've met this person before. And like, you're very limited circle and you're just so busy and you're like, hey, I just need someone now. Um, so folks don't really go that secondary step typically of, okay, where else can I go within like the concentric circles of who's a good fit for this role? Um, and I think the way you solve for that isn't necessarily putting that burden on the hiring managers, even though I do think there's like training that could happen there. But I think it's like, okay, are you going to have like, dedicated resources who are responsible for sourcing or at least like a role or a headcount that's allocated that allocated to that that is like a formal thing within i would say especially for like your triple a studios and like your larger yeah, you companies with like more yeah. resourcing i would say for indie studios to jess's point it's more on the founders to kind of set that vision um but i think really like that resourcing point is like kind of the difference between you know here's something we'd like to do here's like you know, some PR messaging versus like, here's like us actually making traction. Got it. Yeah. This is so smart. I learned so much in this like past like 10 minutes. I think it's a great and really interesting way to think about these issues because I think there is that, that conflict. And I mean, and I've, you know, Lee, we share the, and actually all, actually all three of us share the, share the experience of, well, one, managing growing enterprises, they'd be proud of us based on what we just said there too. So we are just doing really well at our post-GSB, like, did we learn something checkbox list? And at and ABK, like how kind of um, diversity hiring was done and maybe some of the gaps that Activision Blizzard has had in some of those processes, right? Um, and so it's interesting to kind of get the perspectives on how Bad Robot is kind of handling this and um, how there's kind of these flywheel effects of having like an early founding team or early employees that um, represent that diversity and represent those perspectives in, and that will cascade down throughout the line, right? And at the at the bigger studio level, putting um, dedicated resources to it, having making sure that someone is like at the last mile checking to see like, oh, like, is this this, did we do an exhaustive search of everyone that we possibly could? And, or are we kind of just taking shortcuts because like this is the fastest way to the destination, right? Um, but anyway, uh, guys, there is nothing I like more than getting two of my like total of like 20 or 30 X GSBers who work, um, in games ever on air. Um, thank you guys for sharing your expertise, your stories from IW and bad robot and helping to elucidate sort of what gaming professionals should do when it comes to going to a game studio side or the big or the big boys. Um, and so if there's anybody in our audience that might be interested in reaching um, out to either of you, whether that be for Bad Robot, um, Indie Consulting, or IW, what's the best way for them to, to reach you? Jess, how about, how about you go first? Yeah, so uh, the best way to reach me, as kind of Alex mentioned at the top of the podcast, I, as a side gig, help out indie game devs produce better games, market their games, produce faster, all the good stuff. Um, so you can find me and all of my contact information at theindieintellectual.com, uh, where not only I do gigs for consulting, but also I have a few guidebooks 
on exactly those topics, production, product market fit, which is so important in today's market, um, and just in general monetization and good marketing practices for PC games. You can find all that info uh, at my website. Nice. And I'll put that, that'll be in the links below as well. So you can click in the bottom of the episode as well. Um, And Lee? Yeah, on my end, if you're curious to continue the conversation, happy to do so over LinkedIn. So just feel free to send me a message there. Please add like a note saying, hey, you heard me on this great podcast. And then we can continue (laughs) the conversation. Um, Do a lot of mentorship. If you're trying to break into the industry, trying to figure out, navigate AAA or Indie, happy to talk through any of those things and be a sounding board. Yeah, and if you want to make the Call of Duty um, basketball game, you should definitely, <laughs> definitely reach out to Lee because this is a hit. I'm <laughs> pitching it tomorrow. Done. <laughs> okay, guys, on that note, we're going to be concluding. Big thank you, Lee and Jess, for coming on. And thank you to our listeners. I'll be back in two weeks. Um, until next time, friends, and feel free to hit me up at alexandra.novic.co. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, we'd love to hear your feedback. And with that, um, au revoir. See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.